Hi, and welcome back to the Healthy and Happy podcast series. I am, am joined today with Lindsay Lockett, and uh, I'm really excited to have her on the show and to have a conversation with Lindsay today. Um, Lindsay is a, is a trauma educator and nervous system coach, um, which is a really special niche, and um, I'm really excited for this conversation. And so, Lindsay, uh, tell me, tell us what um, what it means to be a trauma educator and a nervous system coach. Okay, so I educate people about how trauma is stored in the body. Um, and the perspective that I have is one that incorporates a lot of consciousness and awareness. Um, so it, it can be spirit. Like I'm a spiritual person, but you don't have to be a spiritual person to be a conscious person. So I like to tell people, if you're really turned off by spirituality, you don't have to be a spiritual person to practice awareness. Um, and so we, what I do in my work is I, um, I help people understand how the root of some of their physical and mental symptoms are rooted in how their body is holding on to trauma and how that's creating dysregulation in their nervous system. And so I like to think of the nervous system like, uh, like a bucket. And if everything that happens to us in our lives, that's stressful or traumatic, if it's like a leak in the ceiling and we put the bucket underneath the leak to catch the water so that it doesn't spill out all over the floor and ruin our house. Um, that when we start experiencing the chronic and mysterious symptoms that people with trauma often experience, then we've reached the point where the bucket isn't, isn't just catching the water anymore. It's now overflowing. <laughs> and so the work that I do is to educate people on how that works and how the nervous system works and how the body holds on to trauma and what that can look like and how that can manifest. And then also to start not only patching the leak in the ceiling, but also bailing some of the water out of the bucket to create more capacity in their nervous systems. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's actually a really great analogy. Thanks. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that so much of the, the work that happens in, in mental health and, and in coaching uh, ignores that whole process and the nervous system. Um, and, and the reality is that very little of, of traditional interventions, you know, cognitive behavioral work or yeah. cognitive work, if you don't pay attention to what happens when the amygdala takes control and, and somebody is yanked into their lower brain, it doesn't matter what your skill set is. It doesn't matter how much education or knowledge or work you've done. Um, when your brain gets hijacked, you're, yep. uh, you're, you're out of luck in terms of, <laughs> yeah. um, of all those upper, upper brain frontal lobe functioning. Yep. Yep. That's what I tell people all the time is like when you're in that sympathetic fight flight state, or even in that parasympathetic dorsal freeze state, yeah. your prefrontal cortex is offline. And like, you don't have access to your logic, your reasoning, your ability to analyze and make grounded decisions because everything is all about your survival. Um, and we often don't make excellent decisions when we're in our limbic brains. <laughs> our limbic brains aren't designed to no. do that. Right. No. And that, I mean, that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make is, is trying to, to function or cope or fight um, resolve conflict uh, uh, when 
when the limbic system is the part of the brain that's in control and it never goes well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you tell me a little about your journey? How did you end up doing this work? Okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> well, as much time as we need. Okay. I'll, I'll give you that. I don't have anything else after this. So I've got all the time in the world, but I understand if you have, you know, people or whatever. Um, so I'll try to give you the Cliff's Notes oh. version. So, <laughs> um, so I was raised in um, the Texas Panhandle. I grew up in the Bible Belt in the South, and religious trauma is a huge, huge piece of my puzzle. Um, I was also raised in a broken home, so my biological parents were divorced before I was two years old, um, and I can only imagine the. Uh, atmosphere in the home that my nervous system at such a young age. Was having. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pre-verbal. Right. And I also don't have memories of that, but of course the atmosphere of my home would have affected my nervous system and would have created some kind of nervous system activation. So my parents got divorced. My mom was a single mom until I was seven. And then she met and married the, the man who became my stepfather. Um, he moved our family six hours away. So after that, I didn't have a relationship with my biological father anymore because we moved so far away. Um, and on top of that, we were going to the first Baptist church in our town. And the messages that I was receiving from the church were that a lot of the things that my biological father did in his lifestyle were wrong and sinful. And so at the tender age of eight, I was like, I can't have a relationship with you anymore, or it, it might make me wrong and sinful. Like I might be corrupted by you. And so the adults in my life were not behaving like adults. And my mother was not like, um, I don't think you want to end your relationship with your biological father. Like nobody was doing that. And so I didn't see my biological father for, um, for 20 years. And in the last 10 years, we've reestablished a relationship and it's, it's wonderful. Um, I'm super grateful to have him in my life, but, but yeah, it was just, just so much indoctrination about things. And then the adults in my life, not acting like adults. And now I can look back and I can see that they were doing the best that they could with the nervous system resources that they had and, um, the little or no trauma education that they had. And of course, being a child in the eighties and nineties, like back then mental health was very stigmatized. Going to therapy was very stigmatized. And so those things like just were not accessible to my parents. Um, and then the religious part was like, I found a lot of solace in religion because I had so much dysfunction and unrest in my home growing up. My stepfather was abusive, physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive. Um, he was, had a very big temper, he was a recovering alcoholic who was basically like a dry drunk. So like he didn't go to AA, he didn't work a program, anything like that. He just didn't drink. <laughs> um, and so just a lot of crap in his life that spilled out onto us kids. Um, so church became like a solace for me because it seemed to offer me the peace and the certainty that I was missing at home. And so 
I bought into it hook, line and sinker became very involved in church when every single time the doors were open, Sunday school, youth group, church camp, all the things I was there. Yeah. And so the messages I was getting from church were very obviously conservative and like the Bible was the literal word of God. And as a woman in the South, in the Bible belt, um, my position was basically as a second class citizen. And like, I was supposed to submit to men and like the authority in my life was my father. And then when I got married, the authority changed to my husband. Um, I got married when I was 19. (laughs) Um, I'm still married to him actually. So I got married when I was 19, had my first baby at 20, had my second baby at 21. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, and just did my best to be the dutiful, submissive, like Proverbs 31 wife. Um, I had a lot of insecurity about like using my voice because that wasn't allowed setting boundaries because that wasn't allowed. Um, I had a lot of stuff about like my body because I was told that if my body wasn't covered and if I wasn't modest, then I was causing other men to sin if they looked at me with lust. And so I was somehow responsible (laughs) for that. Um, and yeah, after I, after my daughter was born in 2005, um, I had really, really terrible postpartum psychosis and anxiety, Um, And that was the first time I ever took an SSRI. So I was prescribed Lexapro, um, which I took for 10 months and um, Lexapro completely and totally like numbed me. And I don't actually remember my daughter's first year. Like, I don't remember her first word or when she walked or like, I don't remember any of that because I was just checked out. (laughs) Um, And one of the ways that I coped with anxiety, which I didn't even realize until I was in my late thirties that I coped with anxiety by needing to be constantly busy because the, the sensation in my body was like this constant buzz. And the only way I knew how to cope with that was to just keep moving and keep doing. And so I don't have OCD in the, in the way that like, I'm afraid of germs or contamination or something like that. But I became very obsessive compulsive about cleaning because that helped me like, release some of that buzzing energy by being busy. There was a way to channel what was going on, that energy. Totally, totally. And it was like the feeling that I was looking for was the feeling that I would get after I would clean my whole house and I would sit down and I would have that like sigh of relief. Like that was the feeling I was constantly searching for. And the only way I knew how to get it was through cleaning my house. And so I didn't enjoy my babies. I didn't hold my babies a lot because I always was up cleaning. Um, it was a really obsessive compulsive thing, but not, not because of germs. Um, and this whole time, my, my husband became a full-time pastor. And so I was a pastor's wife and we were very involved in our church. He was a worship minister. Um, and we did that together, uh, every Sunday for 12 years, um, and homeschooled our kids to keep them away from being corrupted by the secular world. And I mean, all the, all the things. And, um, in 2018 was when my story kind of climaxed. And so in 2018, basically everything that could go wrong in my life did go wrong. Um, everything from like our cars breaking thing, like leaks in our house, we had a chimney fire in our house. <laughs> like We just had all this stuff happening in our house. And then at the same time, like my husband and I were having crazy marital difficulties 
just, we weren't communicating well, we weren't understanding each other. Um, we were both feeling different anxieties and insecurities and like, it was all just kind of erupting at once. And I started using a lot of marijuana to cope to, that was the only way I knew how to like bring the anxiety down. Um, so I was using, like, I would start smoking weed at like 1030 in the morning and wouldn't stop until I went to bed that night. So it was like 12 hours a day of just like being constantly baked. Um, and for a while, like that worked, right? Like that, that helped for a while until it didn't. And then by the fall of 2018, though, like my husband had gotten some therapy. We'd gone to therapy together. We were putting ourselves back together, fixed the things that had broken in our lives. And we're like moving on. And that was when my body was like, "Ah, nope. (laughs) Um, Because for all that time, I had had to carry all of that right in my body. And I was rocked to my core. Um, And so in the fall of 2018, I got what I thought was a urinary tract infection. Um, but my urine, I had it cultured four separate times. It would never culture bacteria. So they could never be like, you have a urinary tract infection, but I had the symptoms. I had the like frequency, painful urination, spasming in my urethra, you know, pressure in my bladder. Like I had all of that going on, but I, it wouldn't stop. Um, that went on for five months and I finally got into Yeah. Five months. Yeah. Um, so I figured out that if I laid down, it got better. And so then I kind of put myself on bed rest, (laughs) um, finally got in to see a urologist and it turns, I was, by the time I got there, I was so anxious. I'd been having so much panic attacks and all of that, that I was convinced I had like bladder cancer or something. And it turns out I didn't have anything pathological happening. I was, I was having a pelvic floor dysfunction issue, um, which for people listening, you may not know how inextricably linked your pelvic floor is to the nervous system. And when you're in that sympathetic fight flight response, all those muscles are just super tense and you're squeezing, um, you know, like think about being literally anal retentive, like literally, right. um, so I needed some pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, <clears throat> another thing that was happening was I was having a lot of pelvic pain, um, apart from the urinary symptoms, I was having like other like cramping issues and stuff and, uh, couldn't figure out what that was. Finally got a diagnosis of pelvic congestion syndrome, which is varicose veins in the pelvis. Mm. Um, so you can't see them from the outside on a woman's body. Um, you can on a man's body though, because the gonads are outside the body. So you can see bulging veins, but you can't on a woman's body. Um, I ended up traveling to London to a vein clinic in London to get my pelvic congestion treated. So I now I have 13 platinum coils in my pelvic veins and no symptoms of pelvic congestion anymore. Um, and just going through all these different health issues and having come off of this, you know, several months long experience of anxiety over my marriage and my house and our finances and like everything going wrong in our lives. My mental health was just in the toilet. And I was, I mean, I was having 10, 12 panic attacks a day. Like I constantly had this just overwhelming anxiety in my body. The knot in my throat was like, you know, it felt like a bowling ball in my throat that I could never swallow. Um, the burning in my solar plexus was just constant. It would radiate into my shoulders and I would feel like my skin was crawling and I wanted to crawl out of my skin. 
um, I was experiencing debilitating, debilitating insomnia, like no more than two hours of sleep a night for like five months. Um, I felt like I was going crazy. I would scream at night. My husband would have to like lay on top of me because the weight of his body was like the only thing that made me feel like I was okay. Um, and I eventually attempted suicide on March 7th, 2019. Um, my husband caught me. I'd been ideating for like two months and he knew I was ideating. Um, and he had tried, you know, you can't babysit a full grown adult all the time. (laughs) So, um, he had tried, you know, every way he could to support me. And so I wasn't suicidal because of a lack of support. Like I'll say that, like I was surrounded by people who loved and cared about me. And I still really believed that my life had, had gotten to this point and there was no way out of it. And I really did not think that I would ever be able to feel peaceful or happy, um, or to function again. And so, by the time I attempted suicide, um, I had lost so much weight that I like was unrecognizable. I mean, I was like skin and bones. I felt like I was shriveling up and dying. I was still eating. Like I knew I was losing weight and it was concerning. So I was just eating and eating, trying to keep it on. But it's like the more I ate, the more my body, like I would lose sometimes five pounds in a week. Like it was crazy. So I checked myself into inpatient mental health care. I knew I was going in for psych meds. Um, at that point, I was happy to go in for psych meds, right. to be honest. Help, right? Yeah. And I, I, I have a background in, in the health and wellness industry. I was a professional food blogger for like seven years and I was, a, I'm a certified health coach. And so I worked with people on supplement protocols and elimination diets. And, um, you know, I wrote paleo and keto and vegan recipes. And like, I talked wow. about supplements and like, I was, I was in, Right. And when I got to the hospital on that cocktail of psych meds, that was the only thing making me sleep at that point, I, it just kind of hit me. Like if all of that restrictive healing dieting and all of those supplement protocols had been what I had needed to be well, I would have been well, like I was a professional at it. right? Right. And I wasn't well, like I was sicker than I'd ever been in my life, despite the fact that I was taking more supplements than I'd ever taken. And I was eating like the most restrictive healing diet I possibly could. Um, I mean, we're talking no sugar, no caffeine, no alcohol, no grains, no dairy. Like we're talking like super restrictive, right? Like bone broth and turmeric, (laughs) you know? Um, So I, w- I just had this realization. If that had been what I needed to be well, I would have been well. And it was like, I felt like the system that had told me that if I just ate the right way and I just took the right supplements and I just worked with the natural, the most natural practitioner, that that's what I needed to be well. And I had been doing that for like 10 years and I was sicker than I'd ever been. And so that like gave me permission to let go of that paradigm and then I started learning about the brain and the nervous system. And when I started learning about the brain and the nervous system, I started implementing somatic stuff. So I was doing bottom up stuff mm-hmm. and I started implementing brain healing stuff. So I was doing top down stuff and the healing that I had been looking for, for like a decade, like came really fast. And that doesn't mean it was easy. Um, because, because, you know, I feel like like the brain healing and the nervous system healing, some of those can seem really tangible. The intangible thing that was really necessary for me was the awareness and consciousness piece. And it was really waking up to the truth that 
I had all of this trauma stored in my body from probably when my mother was pregnant with me, right? Like I had all this trauma in my body. I'd never been able to like feel it or release it somatically and process it and metabolize it and integrate it like that. I'd never had that experience before. My nervous system was completely full, right? The bucket was totally full because the ceiling had Ah. been leaking my whole life and the bucket's overflowing. And so I had to become aware of that and of how that overflowing bucket was informing how I operated in the world. And I had to make the unconscious conscious and be able to not judge myself and not criticize myself, but to have radical compassion for all the ways that I had clumsily stumbled through my life, adapting to survive. And that at one point, some of those adaptive mechanisms really served me because I survived, but they're not serving me anymore. And so I have to be willing to become conscious of those things to feel what that's like in my body, to feel the discomfort of that in my body and to know that I can still be okay and then make the conscious choice to do something different. And so I learned how to rewire my brain with neuroplasticity. (laughs) Um, I learned how to regulate my nervous system. I learned how to process feelings that had been stored in my body out of my body. Um, And I did it all myself because I had, I'd been to therapy. I'd had EMDR. I had done coaching. Like I'd had all that before and it was not I won't say it wasn't helpful, but it wasn't helpful anymore. <clears throat> and so I, I just started doing it all myself. I became my own guinea pig. <laughs> um, and so I just started experimenting with different things. And I was like, what do I have to lose? Right? Like, what do I have to lose? I've already been to the brink of death and tried to kill myself. Like, what do I have to lose? Right. So I had nothing to lose. I had nothing to fear anymore. Um, and so I just jumped in with both feet. And uh, I don't know, about a year into it, I was like, I don't think my purpose in this world is to be a food blogger and a health coach. Like that just doesn't align. It doesn't fit. So, uh, I stopped posting as often on my website and I stopped investing my time into my food blog. Um, and at that point I was making a full-time income from it. So I, I, but I just like stopped and I told the universe in March of 2020, I was like, you know, I'd be willing to sell this. If the right person came along, I would sell it. And almost to the day, and I never told anyone, but my husband never told any of my food blogger colleagues or friends. I never announced it on Instagram. I never put an ad out, nothing. Almost a year to the day later, I woke up one morning to an email that was like, Hey, we really love your website. Would you be interested in selling? And so I like, was like, Hmm, (laughs) I haven't thought about this in a while. Um, I ended up meeting with them. And in June of 2021, we closed on the sale of my website. And the same week, my husband left his job. And now we work full time from home together doing this business, holistic trauma healing. Um, Then I started posting what I was doing on Instagram as well. And for me, it was just, I've always been someone who's very transparent about what I'm going through. And I don't believe in like hiding my struggles. Um, cause I think there's more people out there that need to know that there's people who understand what they're going through. Absolutely. And I was just posting like organic stuff. I started my podcast. So I would post quotes from the podcast and then pretty soon without me ever advertising or anything, people were like, are you coaching? I want to hire you. Like, I want to work with you. And so I was like, well, I am a certified health coach. I don't know why I couldn't carry that over and 
teach people what I know about the nervous system and trauma. So I started, I started um, trauma coaching and nervous system coaching. And now I teach a nervous system workshop about every six weeks. I have a group program called nervous system hygiene. Um, at this point between the workshop and the group program, um, I've taught over 800 people about their nervous systems. Um, I do one-on-one coaching for people. Um, I'm actually completely full. My coaching schedule is completely full right now. And yeah, my, we just hired a VA. I've never hired a VA before, but I have a VA for the first time in my life. And, um, my business is on track to hit six figures this year. So it's pretty exciting. And whether I hit six figures or not, I literally couldn't give a shit. Like I love, love, love talking about the nervous system, helping people feel their feelings, process, metabolize, and integrate that trauma, find meaning in it, and then show up differently in their lives. So I'm just really blessed that I get to be paid to do that. Right. That's my story. (laughs) What a great story. Um, what a, what a great journey. And, and thank you for being so vulnerable and open. You, you hit on some things that are really, really important. Um, and first and foremost, I mean, what, three and a half years ago, you tried to take your life. Yeah. And, and so I think one of the, one of the most inspiring messages from, from you and your story is that um, there is hope and, and change is possible and, and it doesn't have to take decades to do nope. even deep. We call it second order change, even second order change where you you're, you're rewiring the brain can be accomplished fairly, fairly quickly. I mean, three and a half years is still three and a half years, but um, it's really, really cool that you've, <laughs> That you're where you are. <laughs> Thank you. From where you were. Uh, a couple other things I'd just like to highlight in what you said. One is that um, we will cope. Uh, we, we, we can't not cope. And most of the time, when we, when we don't know how to cope well, or we don't have the skills or the tools or whatever, then our brains have to do so much of that coping on their own. And you, you also hit another really important thing. You know, 80% of the brain gets wired by age, by age three, 90% of the brain gets wired by age five. And so much of, of that neurological trauma gets wired in as our brains co-creatively get, get wired with our caregivers during those precognitive years that we're not even aware of. And then our brains are tasked with, with the, the job, the, the ginormous job of trying to, to cope with those things that we're not even aware of. Yeah. And, and so by, by being aware and bringing that coping from, from the back of your brain to the conscious foreground and, and taking the reins of that is, is such a powerful um, and, and helpful tool. Yeah, for sure. You know, another thing that you hit that was really, really powerful is, um, is the, the interplay between our physical health and our emotional and psychological health. And I've been amazed, you know, I've, I've been working with people for over 25 years now. Um, and, um, I've just, 
I'm consistently amazed at the at the link between our physical symptoms and our physical health and and our emotional um, and psychological health. And yeah. I, your story really underscores that as well. Yeah. What's crazy is I, you know, from the time I like in college, um, I was having a lot of like sharp chest pains. My first semester in college, I was having these like really sharp chest pains and I'm still on my parents' health insurance. And so they were like, we, we need to make you an appointment with a doctor to like, see if there's something going on with your heart. So I did, I went and had like an EKG and then the cardiologist gave me one of those portable it's like a, it, you put sensors on your heart and then you wear it for yeah. like 24 hours and it records everything your heart does. And then you give it back to them and they read it. Yeah. Um, and there was absolutely nothing wrong with my heart, like nothing. And it was, it was panic attacks. Like I did not know that yeah. that chest pain at 19 years old was, was panic attacks. And so I had, I had been dealing with anxiety my whole life. Like when I was, I remember being in elementary school and going to the nurse's office like once a week because I had a tummy ache. And like, now I can look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much compassion for that little, little child version of me. Because like, I, I didn't even have words to explain what I was feeling in my body as a result of my home environment. But I, but my body was still carrying the dis-ease from it, right? Like even though it wasn't a diagnosable thing, it was still dis-ease. And I'd been carrying all of this for so long and had never been able to process or make sense of it or metabolize it or integrate it. And to be able to do that resolved the physical symptoms. And so now I know I can look back over the, the decade plus that I spent on what I call the hamster wheel of wellness, which is just like constantly throwing supplements on the wall, like spaghetti and hoping it sticks and hopping, hopping from practitioner to practitioner. And like, Oh, this week I'm eliminating dairy and that's not working. So next week I'm eliminating nuts. And like, I spent over a decade on that and, you know, I'm grateful because it taught me like how to nourish my body. You know, I learned how to read food labels and I learned how to avoid GMOs. And like, I learned all of that. I'm really grateful for that. But it also like put me in this really icky place of feeling like I had to micromanage my body. And it was like a a control that I had to have over my body, which you can look and see mirrored in the rest of my life. Like needing things to be constantly clean is control, needing to control how people perceive me, needing to control my children, not being corrupted by the secular world. So I chose to homeschool them. Like the, the theme of my life has been control. And the lesson I'm here to learn in this lifetime is letting go of control. (laughs) And for someone who wants to control everything, that literal anal retentiveness and like uptightness, right? I'm carrying it in my body. My body is keeping the score. Like I say all the time, our bodies keep the score and our nervous system is the referee. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, you know, it's crazy that I'm healthier than I've ever been. And I take almost no supplements and I don't restrict anything that I eat. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. And, and there again, it's, our systems have to deal with what we've experienced and what, what goes on it with us. And if we're not, if we're not coping with those things in healthy ways, then our systems do the best they can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you also can't do what you don't know. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and you're also a really, a really good example of aggressively doing things that you did know to try to get healthy and, 
and cope and and continued your journey to to finding the healing that has taken place um let's talk for just a minute about some of the science there um and then i want to come back to another um important piece i think to to what you were talking about um and so so what happens for for our listeners um, most of the communication that takes place between our brains and our bodies takes place via the vagus nerve, mm-hmm. which is the largest nerve in our body. It's actually a, a compilation of nerves, nerves that run from the base of our brains down to our pelvis. And there are offshoots um, all up and down the vagus nerve that, that go out to our organs. And so when we, when our when we experience a threat, our bodies, and, and Lindsay mentioned the, the bottom-up kind of interventions, our bodies send a message of threat up to our brains via tightness in our chest or a pit in the stomach or a lump in the throat. All of those things are right along that corridor where the vagus nerve is in our, in our bodies. And, and so our bodies use those signals to send messages of threat up to the brain and um and they're they're received by the thalamus in the brain for those of you that kind of like the science of it the thalamus is kind of like an old-time operator where the thalamus's job is to receive input what we're seeing what we're hearing what we're thinking what we're feeling and then the thalamus routes information to different parts of the brain And so when we receive a message of threat that comes up from the body to the thalamus, the thalamus normally does two things with that. One is it sends a message to the amygdala, which is housed right next door to to the thalamus. And the pathway between the thalamus and the amygdala is a big pathway. And so it sends a message to the thalamus, and then it also sends a message of threat up to the frontal lobes which are housed a long ways away from from the thalamus. And the route is more of a circuitous route. So the message takes longer to get to the frontal lobes than it does to the amygdala. Well, for those of you that don't know, the amygdala's job is to keep us safe. Um, It is is self-preservation. And so, you know, if you're being chased by a bear or, or you put your hand on a hot stove, the amygdala is the part of our brains that copes with that. It it controls the, the fight flight or freeze functions in our brains. And so the amygdala's tendency and job is to always believe that there's a threat. If it, if it gets a message, its job is to keep us safe. And so it, it believes there's a threat. The amygdala sends a message back out to the body to, to deal with the threat. Um, Research has actually identified 1,400, over 1,400 physiological reactions when, when we get into that um, flooded emotional state from um, cortisol being released, adrenaline being released, heart rate increases, um, blood vessels constrict um, and narrow so the blood can go through them, heart rate increases, uh, capillaries in the lungs um, uh, dilate. And pupils um, dilate, dilate, (laughs) digestion Um, shuts down, (laughs) digestion shuts down, the the, uh, reproductive system slows down, Uh, anything non-essential for for survival 
is slowed, slowed down or taken offline and anything essential or helpful to get away from a bear <laughs> um, is, is ramped up. And, um, and one of the key things to remember is that for most of us, the way most of us live, live our lives, there just aren't very many times when we need the amygdala to be the part of our brain that is doing the coping. Yeah. Um, yet, when we have trauma, um, which lots of us do, there are lots of times when the amygdala takes control, um, when we really would be better served to have our frontal lobes being in control. Yeah. You want to add uh, anything to that? I, I mean, the only thing I would add is, is that it, for people who have experienced trauma, whether it's physical trauma, like a, a head trauma or an emotional trauma, um, birth trauma, like whatever the trauma is that over time, when you experience these things, the amygdala enlarges. And so people with, uh, complex trauma histories often have more or bigger amygdalas than people without. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really overreactive. So then everything becomes a threat. And so that's when I see like in my work, um, even foods become a threat. So people start becoming really reactive to foods and it's not because they have a food allergy. It's because their amygdala subconsciously is sensing this food is a threat. This food is bad. I'm going to react to this food. So yeah, I would just add that like it, it enlarges the amygdala. And so then more things feel threatening than they actually are. And, you know, our species hasn't evolved yet for our limbic brains to understand that we're not being chased by saber tooth tigers all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like our, our nervous systems and our limbic brains don't know the difference between a bear in the woods and an overdue electric bill. Right. right. They don't know the difference. So you're physiologically, if you sense both as a threat, you're going to respond the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really well said. Yeah, another thing that the that the amygdala does once it, it receives a, a threat message is that it shuts off the frontal lobes. Yeah. And so we we literally, and, and again, for those of you listening that, that may not know, frontal lobes are are the part of our brain that really differentiates mm-hmm. differentiates us from all their life form. It's where logical reasoning and negotiation and problem solving, all of those good things happen in in the frontal lobes and literally blood is taken away from that part of our brains and and we lose our ability to think well yeah and so one one of the one of the ways that i think about this and and work with people on it is is really the question of which again are we will cope but which part of your brain do you want to be coping with a given situation yeah because there, there are times, I mean, if you're, if your hands on a burner, you don't want your frontal lobes being the part of your brain doing yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. You want the amygdala getting your hand off that burner quickly. Yeah. You don't want your frontal lobe saying, huh, I wonder what a third degree burn feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way I like to describe it is, uh, it's really similar, but I use the bear in the woods analogy. So I'm like, when you're walking through the woods and you come across a bear in the woods, like you see that bear and immediately you feel threat, right? And so you're in a sympathetic activation response. Your pupils have dilated, your blood is flowing, your heart rate is faster, your muscles are tensed up, your digestion shuts off. Like your body is like, we're either going to fight this bear or we're running the hell away from this bear. So you're in that limbic brain 
you don't like say, uh, you know, I think I'm going to sit here and make a pros and cons list. Like, should I run away? Should Mm -hmm. I stay here and fight? Maybe I'll call my mom and ask her like that. It it doesn't make sense to do any of those things. Right. But it does make sense. Right. But it does make sense to do those things. Like, for example, when we get into a confrontational conversation with a partner, for example, like if our amygdalas have taken over in that, then it's just going to be reactive. It's going to be unconscious. We're going to say things we regret. We're going to be stuck in like fight mode or flight mode or something like that. And so we do want to have access to our prefrontal cortex so that we can reason and ask questions and not raise our voices and all of those things. And, um, but I, you know, I can't not talk about the connection to the body here too, because for some people, for, for most people, I would say when they are able to like be in a confrontational conversation, for example, sometimes the feelings of their body actually feel more threatening than the conversation itself. It's like the anxiety in my body over having this conversation. Um, maybe I have past trauma where I was gaslit in conversations before. And so having conflict now is a reminder of what I went through in the past, or maybe you were verbally abused. And so present day conflict reminds you of that triggers that. And so that's where we have to get into the body. Like that's where we have to use our consciousness to override what the nervous system is doing. And we're the only species that has the ability to do that. So we can feel sympathetic activation. And if we're conscious, we don't have to react to it. We can respond to it instead, but that requires being able to be embodied. Yes. Yeah. And, and taking the time to be able to get the, the frontal lobes back online. Yeah. Um, Giving yourself, you know, one of the things that I, kind of the misnomers that I've heard a lot in my office over the years is, is a belief that um, when somebody's in the middle of an emotionally flooded moment and, and they're fighting like that, that's when we tend to think that we're getting the most honest like view of how you really feel about me. And, and it's simply not the case because Mm. when, when you are in fight, flight, or freeze, the, the objective of the brain in those moments is self-preservation. And so we say things we normally wouldn't say. We do things we normally wouldn't do um, because the goal is either to hurt you or to get away from you, right? And that's, that's the very different objective than the objective being to connect with you, to work through this problem or whatever with you. So it's, the, the brain has a very different objective during those times. And so those are not the most honest times. Those are the times when if I know that you're insecure about your, your parenting, or if I know that you're insecure about whatever, you know, whatever your button might be, that's when my brain is going to say, Oh, that's a good weapon. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, I'm, I'm going to get her right there okay. <laughs> exactly. because my, cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to fight you. Right. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do that. And so so it's a, it's it's really important to recognize that what what our brains are trying to do there. Yeah. Um, you you brought up another thing that that I think is um, a little more difficult for for some people to to kind of talk about and navigate, and that that involves religion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And I'm a I'm a highly religious person, um, highly spiritual and religious person. Both I I value um, I value that area of my life a lot. 
And one of the things that I see a lot with the people that I work with is um, hiding in religion um, either because they don't know how or they're afraid to cope with issues or things that are really going on. Mm-hmm. And so, so they'll, they will, um, and it, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about sexual intimacy or, or, um, or problem solving or, um, or marijuana or whatever the, the case might be, right? We, um, we frequently will, will, will find refuge in, in structure and, um, and a, a, a deferment to a system that makes it so that I don't have to work through what's mm-hmm. going on inside. Does that make sense? Yeah. I call that spiritually bypassing. That's a good word. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, I mean, from an evangelical Christian perspective, like where I was raised, I'm not applying this generally to all evangelical yeah. Christians. I'm just saying how I was raised is that, you know, mental el- mental illness um, is is a spiritual problem. And so if you're feeling anxious, it's because you're not trusting God. If you're feeling depressed, it's because you don't have the joy of the Lord. So it's like it, it becomes a spiritual issue because mental illness or mental health is so stigmatized. And um, the church that I was going to it, it would cast demons out of people because anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts and all of that were like demonic oppression. (laughs) Um, so that's like an extreme form of spiritually bypassing, but even in non-religious people, um, like people who are really into meditating, for example, and I'm not against meditating at all. Um, I think meditating is wonderful, but there sometimes can be the tendency to use meditation as a way to not feel what we're feeling. And it's like, oh, I'm feeling angry. I need to go meditate. I'm feeling anxious. I need to go meditate. And then that often creates even more activation for people because then whenever they get still and try to meditate, they've got all this fight flight energy going through their body and their bodies are buzzing and their brains are, you know, their thoughts are just going and going and going. And and they're like, well, what the, what the heck I'm supposed to be able to just sit here and not have any thoughts and I can't stop having thoughts. So there must be something wrong with how I'm meditating. So even that, even meditation can be used as a way to spiritually bypass, um, like sensation and feeling in the body and embodying emotion. And, and, um, and doing so in a safe way that doesn't hurt self and others. Yeah, that's a really good, good way to say that. I, you know, the easiest definition of mindfulness that I am aware of is, is allowing yourself to feel an emotion and allowing it to pass through, right. To cope with it. And, and I, and you, we can be dysfunctional when we don't do either, you know, you can damn it before it comes in not allowing yourself to feel it. And you can also damn it inside, not allowing, allowing it to go through. And um, we get really afraid to, to let ourselves feel what we're, what we're feeling. Yeah. That's why I talk a lot about openness and closing in my work. And so um, for example, most people unconsciously will have a sensation in the body And if they're like a head walking around with legs and they're totally in their head all the time, but they're not in their body, 
they don't realize that they're having the sensation in the body, but the mind is like, you know, going 90 miles an hour in response to the sensation in the body, because 80% of the communication between brain and body comes from the body to the brain. So if we're disconnected from our bodies and we're like living from here up from our necks up, then we'll, we still experience sensation, but we're not connected to that sensation. And so then our minds start to form stories about it. And then we believe those stories because we're not conscious of those stories. And so then we're reacting and we're doing things as if they were true. And we do things and say things that are really not in alignment with who we are because we're disembodied and we're just walking around in our heads all the time, reacting to what we're feeling in our bodies. Um, And so a big part of my work is, is, is literally, I told a client this the other day, I was like, I think I should just change all my marketing to say, I help people feel their feelings. (laughs) Like, because, because I do, I help people get out of the head and out of the stories. And that doesn't mean that our minds aren't important. Obviously we need our minds to make logical, rational decisions. Um, But we go wrong whenever we're disembodied. And it's an incredible feeling to be able to feel discomfort about something in your body and not use that discomfort as an excuse for resistance. So I I talk about the difference between intuitive resistance and fear-based resistance. So like for me, for example, intuitive resistance is like, I I have very, very strong intuition. I'm very connected to my body and my body will speak to me before my brain even has a chance to like catch up sometimes. So I can like, you know, meet someone and I'll have like a feeling about them. And I'm like, "Eh, I don't know about this person, (laughs) you know, like, I don't know about this. I don't have any logical, yeah, I don't have any logical way of explaining why, but it's just like, I don't have a good feeling or I do have a good feeling. I do feel connection to this person. Um, And so when we're embodied in that way and we can have those feelings about something, like I would say that if I come across someone and I get like a creepy vibe something about them doesn't feel safe. I don't want to share space with them. I really don't want to get to know them. Like that's intuitive resistance. That's like, I don't have a logical explanation for this because I just met this person, but something about this doesn't feel right. And it's okay for me to be like, "Eh, I don't know, you know, I don't know about you, but we have to listen to our intuitive resistance because it's keeping us safe. But then we also have fear-based resistance and fear-based resistance is like, for example, this actually happened to me uh, yesterday. I hired a a VA um, a couple weeks ago and originally I hired her to take over Instagram for me because my DMs are like a jungle. And then I realized I'm fine with her taking over the DMs, but what I feel really overwhelmed by is my schedule. And like keeping up with my own schedule and how nice would it be to have someone else sort of keep track of all of that for me. And so I was talking to her about this and I was like, she was like, well, I could, I could take over your schedule. I could do that. And immediately I was like, no, that makes me really uncomfortable. (laughs) Like she didn't do anything wrong, but I was like, I don't know. That makes me feel really uncomfortable. Like I'm terrified of missing appointments. I'm terrified of, of clients thinking I forgot them or whatever. Like, I don't know about that, but I've gotten so good at being able to feel in the moment and I don't have to like excuse myself and go sit and feel it for a while. I can do it in real time. And I leaned into that resistance in real time. And what I realized was that was not intuitive resistance. That was fear-based resistance. I was resisting an opportunity to let go of control and I didn't want to because it made me uncomfortable. And so I told her that I was like, actually, 
I'm noticing the resistance in my body is not because I don't trust you to do this. It's because I feel uncomfortable letting go of control. And so it is an exercise in being in uncomfortable feelings and knowing that I can still be okay to allow you to take over this for me and to trust that a, you're an adult, you can handle this. B, that it's okay for me to tell you I want it done differently. If if there's something you're doing that I don't like, like we can figure this out together, right? Um, But just being able to tell the difference, because a lot of people will say like, oh, my intuition is telling me I shouldn't do this thing, when really it's not intuitive resistance, it's fear-based resistance. And that fear-based resistance is also to protect us but it's not our highest self's way of protecting us, which is what intuitive resistance is. It's our ego's way of protecting us, which is fear-based resistance. I hope that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Awesome. Awesome. Quote, awesome. Coping. Really great example. Um, I want to, I want to highlight one more thing and then, and then we probably better wrap up, but I am, you mentioned something too, that I think is really important that at some point along your journey, you recognize that, um, that your parents uh, uh, were doing and, and probably others were doing the best that they could with their level of health. Um, And, and I think that there's a really important both message here. There's a big difference between, you know, and or versus instead of, and it's really empowering and true. Most of us are doing the best that we can with where we are in our journey. And it's okay to acknowledge that that's not healthy. Yep. Right. It's okay to acknowledge that, that, you know, what happened, what you lived wasn't, wasn't healthy and, and didn't, didn't work. Um, that reality doesn't have to negate compassion and, right. and, explanation right versus excuse um and the fact that you extend um you know benevolence or whatever benefit of the doubt because you can understand where they were coming from doesn't excuse the behavior either right anyway just a really important point that you pointed out there that i didn't want <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if your listeners are familiar. Um, this, this is a book that I, I've reread it like three, four times. Um, I actually recently bought myself a new copy so I could reread it and underline all over again. Cause I love it so much. I use it all the time in my work, but it's called complex PTSD by Pete Walker. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you do show notes or something, you might like to link to that, but, um, it is really, really important for people with childhood trauma, whether that's big T trauma or little T trauma, um, you know, big T being things like you were physically abused, you were sexually abused, you witnessed drug use, um, you had a parent who attempted suicide, something like that versus little T trauma, which would be things like your, your mother was passive aggressive or um, your parents had a codependent relationship or um, you were expected to be perfect at everything, like things like that. I don't really like big T, little T trauma. I think trauma comparison is completely useless and it makes people feel really invalidated who are experiencing real pain. Um, but that is the definition. So with all of that said, he talks about in his book that in order to heal from our childhood trauma, like we can acknowledge that, um, that those, voices that we now hear in our heads, like those internalized voices 
especially the ones that are like shaming us, guilting us, blaming us, stuff like that, that those originated as being the voices of our parents and caregivers. And then at some point they morphed into what we believe is our voice. So if if we had a parent who didn't think that we did anything good enough, you know, if they were constantly berating us because we weren't making good enough grades, we weren't skinny enough, we weren't, you know, whatever enough, then at some point that voice morphs into, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not worthy. And it's important as we begin to unpack those patterns and beliefs to be able to trace it back to actually this message came from my father, or this message came from a teacher who humiliated me at school or whatever. And to be able to take the energy that we would put into shaming and blaming ourselves and keeping ourselves stuck and actually be able to project it back onto the caregiver or parent in in a blaming way. I mean, I'm being serious in a blaming way. We need to be able to blame them because then that helps that inner child part of us realize this was not my fault and this is not who I am. And only when we can actually take that blame and shame and turn it back on our parents and realize like, actually they weren't doing a good enough job. They weren't good enough parents. They really weren't. But what I do with that is now my responsibility. They're not responsible for that for me anymore. I'm responsible for that, but I can still acknowledge that they didn't do a good enough job. Exactly. And that is so powerful because it helps us be aware of that voice in our heads and how we can turn that energy from self-loathing onto somebody else. But then at some point it naturally sort of dissolves into this compassion that you have for your parents, because then you realize, well, their parents weren't good enough either. Right. Right. And so that's when we get into uh, one of the pieces of my work is also ancestral trauma. And so that's when we get into seeing how these patterns repeat generation after generation after generation until somebody has the awareness, like what I'm talking about and can see that what happened to them wasn't their fault and it wasn't fair. It wasn't okay. Right. But, a four-year-old shouldn't be able to, or a, right. you know, a seven-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. But now I'm an adult. I'm an adult now. So I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm choosing to heal for myself. I'm choosing to heal for all the people in my family lineage before me who didn't have this awareness or this education or the resources to heal this. And then that means I'm changing my lineage from me going forward. Change generation. Right. Yeah, that's super awesome. Well, Lindsay, I have really enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks. I appreciate Um, you having me. And it's obvious that you're doing really great work. Thank you. Um, where where's the best place for people to find you <laughs> um on instagram i am Lindsay lockett that's my handle i am Lindsay lockett Lindsay's with an ey not an ay um and then my website lindsaylockett.com um i teach a nervous system workshop there's links for that i have a group program there's links for that my podcast is called holistic trauma healing you can listen to it anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts and I'm not currently accepting clients for coaching because I'm all full, but I have a wait list if people want to get on it. <laughs> cool. Any closing remarks that you'd like to share? I don't think so. This is great. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. For sure.